truth. How do we discover it? How do we understand it? And how do we apply it? These foundational questions of life can be answered in the pages of God's Word, the Bible. Through the systematic study of Scripture, we seek to equip women with a growing understanding of truth, which only comes by knowing the God of all truth. This is the Theology Matters Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Theology Matters Podcast. I am Laura Corumbus, and I am here with Bethany Drum and Marty Crabtree and Wendy Blackwell. And we are excited to be here to talk about Christology today. And before we get going on that, I'll ask you guys a question. Since we're talking about Christology and it's Jesus, God in the flesh, we'll talk about (laughs) fleshy things. I don't know. Uh, The question is, are you a hugger? I'm a hugger and not a side hugger either. Oh, okay. You're a serious hugger. I'm a serious hugger. I don't want to mess around. I'm a hugger. I have a funny story about a hugger. Oh, yeah. I want to hear hear a funny story. (laughs) (laughs) We were having a women's ministry event, and I was greeting women coming through, and it was a series of women I knew. So I went was down the line hugging, and up came a lady. I didn't know her, but I didn't want to offend her and not hug her. So I hugged her, too. And then I stepped back, and I said— I'm from the South. I'm a hugger. And she says, I'm from the North and I'm not. Oh, it was quite an interesting moment of awkward silence. The beauty of the story is that I have come to know her and now she initiates hugging me. But it was, it was a little touchy there for a little while. No pun intended. Okay. Wow. (laughs) No touchy there. Thanks. Bethany, what about you? Oh yeah. I'm I'm definitely a hugger. Okay. Which was interesting during the first year, especially of COVID, True. because you had to kind of ask people. It's almost like you had to get permission mm-hmm. to hug. You didn't just like go in for the hug. That's true. Yeah, I'm. I I, don't, I hesitate to say anything because I feel like people are going to see me and go, "Don't." Don't give Laura Corumbus a hug. I wouldn't say I'm not a hugger. I like hugging, but I'm not usually the one that initiates the hug. So I will never turn away a hug, but it's not like my normal thing to see somebody and give them a hug, except for specific people who I know just are really wanting a hug. So I don't know what that makes me kind of a hugger. (laughs) Uh, Well, I always want a hug, so you better hug me. I will hug you. (laughs) And when we're done here, you're all getting hugs from me, okay? (laughs) Um, So let's dive into Christology, which is much more interesting than hugging. (laughs) Uh, But before we do that, I just wanted to say about Christology that in our class that we did, we did not cover all of Christology in the first semester. So we are calling this episode Christology Part One because we still we still have some things to cover in Christology, and so if we have a season two of the podcast, then we'll cover some more Christology there. So don't it won't be exhaustive today. Not that any of our podcasts are, but just so you know, we have not covered all of Christology in our first semester of our class. Well, Laura, what is Christology? Why don't we start there? Yes, Christology is just simply the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, you know, this is a really important study because we are Christians. So our beliefs and our um, life is centered on Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And as we talked about earlier, 
in our church history episode, a lot of the early heresies were around the person of Christ and the nature of Christ. And so it's important to study Christology. And without Christology, we can't understand our salvation. So uh, it's an important topic to cover. And the way that we broke it down um, by category when we were teaching it is that we talked about the preexistence and eternity of the Son, the prophecies about the Messiah, the person of Christ, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the work of Christ. So all of those things fall under the category, category of Christology. And um, Christology, too, it comes from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one or the chosen one. And in Hebrew, that word is Mashiach, which is our word for Messiah. And so uh, calling Jesus the Christ or the Messiah has significant meaning, and it would have had significant meaning to the Jews at that time um, because the Messiah connotes the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so the Old Testament was revealing that there would be one ultimate Messiah. So Laura, then let's start with the preexistence of Christ. What passages in the Bible point us to that? It's really important to know that, you know, Christ was there from the beginning and the Bible tells us that. And so um, as we've talked about with the Trinity, he was he is God and he was with God in the beginning, which is what John 1 says. So I asked Marty if she would go ahead and read some of John 1. I'm delighted to read from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. Not anything was made that was made. In him was life. In the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you. Yeah. So, so that John 1 passage just shows us, in the beginning, which harkens back to Genesis, um, was the Word, and the Word was with God as the Son, and He was God, which is very Trinitarian as well. So that points to His preexistence. And then, Wendy, are you going to read—can you read Colossians 1, 15 through 19? I can. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Yeah, so that one points again to creation and by him and through him and for him, all things were created. Um, and a couple other places are just in John 8, um, where he, where Jesus is having a conversation um, with the Pharisees. And they're going back and forth, and he's talking about Abraham. And the they kind of say to him, well, how how did you know Abraham? You're you're not old enough to know to know Abraham. And he replies, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, which was a huge statement for him to make that he was God. And also 
that I am statement points back to Exodus where he is self-existent. So that self-existence also points to his pre-existence. So those are some of the places, not all of the places, but some of the places in the Bible that point us to the pre-existence of Christ and also his equality um, as God as well. Yes, well, you know, looking at um, the pre-existence of Christ in the New Testament, well, what are some of the Old Testament prophecies that Christ fulfilled? Well, the prophecies, it's really interesting to look at the prophecies, and we're going to look at a few of them here more in depth. But uh, the odds of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies, of one man fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament are pretty incredible. So um, there, there have been studies that have been done <laughs> with statistics, and I kind of laugh at this because I am not a math person at all, um, but I still found it really interesting just that the odds of Jesus fulfilling even eight of the prophecies about himself, and there are about 300 that he fulfilled, but the, the uh, statistics say the probability of him fulfilling even eight of them is one in 10 to the 17th power. So it's a one with 17 zeros behind it, which is 100 quadrillion. So it's more than we can imagine at all. And um, then Wendy and I both <laughs> mentioned this little visual for imagining uh, how big that is. But if you took silver dollars, that many silver dollars, so one uh, out of 10 to the 17th power, those, that many silver dollars, and laid them on the face of Texas, they'll cover the state of Texas two feet deep. And if you could find one of those, then that those are the odds of Jesus fulfilling only eight of the prophecies in the Old Testament about himself. And he fulfilled 300. So it's pretty staggering. So we do not have time <laughs> to get into all 300 of those today, but we thought that we might take a stab at three of them. And so I'm going to start and, oh, it's so hard to choose. But I, I wanted to come back to this idea of Jesus being the seed of Abraham, because when I went through some of these in class, I had a great question about this, and I didn't feel like I was able to give a great answer on the spot there. So I can talk about it a little bit here. But um, basically what we see, if we look back in Genesis 12 at the Abrahamic covenant, we see that um, Abraham is made a promise. I'm just going to read it. Just Genesis 12, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the Abrahamic covenant that God gives to Abraham. And when he talks about the spiritual blessing, he says, you know, it's restated throughout scripture and other places that it's going to be to you and to your offspring or to your seed. That's the word that is used. And then in Galatians 3... Paul um, says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, 
who is Christ. And so Paul points out that that is actually Christ that is being spoken of. And one of the questions that I got was, well, when we go back to Genesis, is offspring singular or is it plural? How was Abraham thinking about it? That was kind of the question. And so it's interesting because this word seed, um, it can refer to many or it can refer to one. And so we see the word seed referring to an individual when the Bible talks about Seth or Ishmael or Samuel or Solomon. Those are all places where it uses seed in a singular sense. Um, but then it also uses it collectively where it's many descendants. So if you think of an English as the word or of the word man, um, you might be talking about a specific person but we also use the word man as in mankind, as, as collectively. So it's kind of the same idea. So Paul is using the singular noun, and he's narrowing it down to Christ. And he's saying that because he knows that Christ is the only way that men can be blessed. The, the blessings to the world come through Christ. And Paul uses the phrase in Christ over and over in his writings. Um, so that, and that whole idea of the seed also goes back to Genesis 3.15. That's really where it starts, um, where it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. And that's also looking forward to Christ. So this whole seed that we see, that idea throughout scripture is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So I think Marty is going to take us to one of our favorite passages, <laughs> Isaiah 53. Yes. I wanted to do this passage because Laura and I were uh, Bible study teachers together this past uh, year and taught Isaiah. And I had the privilege of, of teaching this section on Isaiah 53. And I, I titled it The Gospel of Isaiah, because Isaiah 53 truly does have the gospel. Uh, there are many Old Testament passages, obviously, that refer to Christ. Two of the most specific, I think, are Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. But I'm going to deal primarily with, with Isaiah 53. And um, the chapter divisions in the Bible were not original. And so this section actually begins in chapter 52 in verse 13. And let me read it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And what, the, what this is saying, so it's describing the servant God's servant, and it says that his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. This is a reference to the appearance of Jesus after the beating at the hands of the Roman soldiers, which is mentioned in uh, Luke 23:63, that they mocked and beat him. And historians point out, biblical historians point out that this kind of beating involved uh, a whip that would have pieces of bone and rocks and so forth uh, attached to the ends of it. And so when the, he was flogged, it just tore his, his flesh. And that is why it says that his appearance was marred. And so that is really a very specific reference to 
uh, Christ's uh, crucifixion. But I want to read a section of Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2, because it it records the humiliation of Christ at the hands of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders. So just listen to this and think about what you know about the crucifixion and how this describes it. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Very clearly, there are references uh, to the crucifixion here about him being pierced and crushed for our iniquities. It's picked up in First uh, Peter chapter two, um, Lamentations chapter three. Romans chapter 10, all of these, in addition to the gospel uh, descriptions of the crucifixion, uh, talk about that. Um, But let me read on. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And that's a reference to Jesus being before Pilate. And Pilate questioned him. And and the Bible tells us that Jesus did not respond to him. Uh, Verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His grave being with a a rich man in his death is that he didn't have a grave. Jesus owned nothing, and so he was given a a grave to be buried in, and he had done no violence. Pilate himself said, I find no guilt in this man. But verse 10 goes on and says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Uh, This word crush is also used in Genesis 3.15. It's the same word in Hebrew where uh, God is speaking to the serpent and he tells him, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word that's translated bruise there is the word that's translated crush in uh, here in Isaiah. Verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, Romans 5 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And that was the reconciliation, the redemption that, that Jesus 
paid for us on the cross. And this chapter closes by saying that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus' work on the cross, his death on our behalf is clear in Isaiah chapter 53. Yeah, thank you. That's it, it really is amazing how many prophecies are in just that one passage that we see fulfilled. Um, okay, so Wendy is going to take us to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Um, I think I'm bringing it home. Laura, you did the seed. Marty went through the suffering servant, and I will go into Jeremiah 31 and, and see the prophecy fulfilled in Christ being the new covenant. Um, so Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is the old covenant versus the new covenant, and praise the Lord that you and I live under the new covenant. Um, as, as Bethany knows about me, I won't take you all the way through the Old Testament, though I do love now hanging out in the Old Testament, mainly because it just gives such a fuller understanding of the New Testament and all that you and I have in Christ, um, what he did on our behalf. So just I will do a brief rundown just to see the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant as it was fulfilled. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was established under the law given to Moses. Um, Hebrews 10 tells us that that was, though, just a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So we knew when the Old Covenant was given that it was a temporary thing, but it was to help the people look forward to what was to come. And we know that the Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone. It required work. It required Moses' work to write them again after in anger he threw them down and broke them. It required work also because it set up the sacrificial system, a system that was repeated as needed by individuals and a, a system that was repeated annually for the nation by the high priest. It required the death and the shed blood of a spotless lamb, turtle dove, goat, livestock um, to pay for sins. But we know from Hebrews also that it can never make perfect those who draw near through this system. Um, it was simply repeated as a reminder of their sins year after year. It could never completely take away their sins, which Hebrews 10 goes on to say when it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So that was the old covenant. That was the system Israel and Judah operated under in the Old Testament. And then we see the new covenant come in with Christ. And in contrast, we see it written on hearts, hearts of stone replaced by hearts of flesh. We see it as God's work, not man's work. We, we still see that it requires the shed blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for sins, but it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was the blood shed by Christ. Um, and as Marty read out of Hebrews 7, that makes perfect those who draw near by faith in Christ who shed his blood to take away the sins of the world. It was um, 
Jesus made it clear, let me say that. In, in Luke 22, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he said, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he made it unmistakable that his shed blood represented the new covenant. And it is because of that he was able on the cross to say, it is finished. The old covenant was completed. Christ was the final, the sufficient, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And with that, he inaugurated the new covenant. And um, again, that was laid out in Jeremiah and fulfilled in the New Testament. And for that, we have much to be thankful. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking us through some of those prophecies. I think it's just worth taking the time to see where Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament and how those fulfillments come to be in the New Testament. And we're going to talk next about the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And as we talked about on our church history episode, this is something that was very controversial in the early church, or not controversial, but that they were trying to really figure out and be able to define. And we looked at um, the Council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon, as we like to call it. Um, so we're going to look a little bit more into those things. So Wendy, can you talk to us about the deity of Jesus? I can. Um, I think out of the council that you talked about where you made the statement that he was truly God and truly man, and you hear people also say he was fully God and fully man. And so um, in talking about his deity, that is the part where he was truly God and fully God. And um, and so just like the councils did, I'm going to Scripture because I think that's irrefutable that he is who he says he is in, in Scripture. And, and we know our salvation is secure because Christ is who he said he is. So just to run through some Scriptures, um, John 10, 30, Christ says, I and the Father are one. John 10, verses 37 and 38 say, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And one also from John, John 5, verses 17 and 18 says, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And I just have to comment on that as I was pulling that one, be interested, maybe you guys are ahead of me, but as I was pulling that, just the last statement where he said, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I think that's an interesting statement because a lot of time people, when we talk about the Trinity as father, son, and spirit, we think that father and son puts them in subordinate position because in our understanding, a son is subordinate to a father. But it says here, when Christ used that term, when he called God his father, he made himself equal with God. And I think that quickly undoes any thought of subordination in those roles within the Trinity. So just interesting thought continues our teaching. Yeah, I mean, I think John 17 deals with that when Jesus is praying and talks about how God glorifies him and that he glorifies the Father. That, I think, speaks to the their uh, equality. Yeah, they are co-equal, co-eternal. And so it's, it's very clear when you go to Scripture, um, fully God, 
we've already read Colossians 1.19, and you said, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And further in Colossians, Colossians 2.9 says, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So you see his deity and his humanity together in that verse. And um, and then Hebrews 1.3, we we've go to frequently. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I know all you listening cannot see my notes, but in my notes, exact is bold. It is unmistakable that he is the exact imprint of his father's nature. Um, and that just, again, I think brings back the point that he is fully God he is truly God, full deity. And so, and and for us, it is only one who knows God that can make God fully known. And that's why when we go to John 1 and it says, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so again, you see God the Father, God the Son, the only begotten God is God the Son at his Father's side, and it is through him that he's made his Father's made his father known. And so some of the things I looked at said, when you want to look at the deity, that when you get to the resurrection, the deity of God becomes, or the deity of Christ becomes unquestionable. Um, Christ was who he claimed to be. And if he was not fully God, he would not have risen from the dead. And so that gives us the assurance that he was fully God and he was the one who was perfect, who was spotless, who was blameless, and who was acceptable as a sacrifice in our place. So his res- resurrection demonstrated his perfection. It also demonstrated his power, because only the one who has the power of life in him can conquer death. So when he rose victoriously over death, he secured our path to eternal life. And I think that's clear in, in 1 John 5 where it says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so it is through the power displayed at the resurrection that we we know for sure he was fully God um, in his life. And But if we go I went straight to the resurrection. If you go back to the crucifixion and his death, his death demonstrates his humanity. God, eternal God, does not experience death. But Christ in his humanity demonstrated death on our behalf or suffered death, I shouldn't say, just demonstrated. He suffered death on our behalf in our place to atone for our sins and secure our salvation. So if I can just read a passage from Hebrews 10 that pulls all of this together, I think, very well. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
again, since I talked about Jeremiah 31 a little little while ago, you write here, see, he does away with the first. That's the first, the old covenant, to establish the second or the new covenant, and that is through his shed blood on the cross in our place. So he was fully God. And Marty? He was fully man. He was fully man. That's right. There are a number of passages that mention the fact that that he was hungry and that he expressed emotion, um, that he became angry, that he was tempted, and as you mentioned, that he suffered a a human death. But as I think about um, the idea of the humanity of Jesus, there is a particular verse that I I look at as a proof text on the deity and humanity of Christ, which is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which says, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So there's his, his deity. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this is a hefty piece of theology regarding the person of Christ as his deity and humanity, uh, the work of Christ and his role in the Trinity. And it refers to his humanity in, in this way. I'm going to pull these phrases out. That he was born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, death on a cross, He was born like a human being, and as you said, he died as all human beings uh, die. But earlier in in the, the course, we talked about exegesis. And so I want to do just a little bit of exegesis on these verses in Philippians, because I think that will be very helpful to us. So when we looked at the phrase emptied himself, and particularly at the word emptied, uh, the, the Greek word means to make something unrecognizable. In other words, those who saw Jesus could not see that he was a deity, that he was the son of God, because he looked like he was just the son of Mary and Joseph. And so when he emptied himself, he appeared totally as a human being. Philippians also says he took on the form of a servant. This word form is a Greek word morphe, from which we get the word morphology, which is a biological term dealing with the structure of organisms. The Greek word itself has a sense that uh, about the structure on the internal part of something, that the structure inside of a of something relates perfectly to what is on the outside. And so in taking the form, he had the structure um, of a human. And that's why theologians say that Jesus was fully man while also being fully God. He had a liver, he had kidneys, he had kneecaps, and all the rest. But notice also that this passage in Philippians earlier talks about Jesus being in the form of God, using also that same word. And the, then the thought occurred to me, okay, what is the inner structure of the form of God? What would you say? What is the inner structure when we talk about the form of God? His character? 
I, I think of it as characteristics. That's its essence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was my thought was his attributes. Mm-hmm. And Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so even though he was a man, he still had the attributes of, of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philippians here says that he was born in the likeness of men. Born is this Greek word genomai from, re- from which we get our word genome. And it means to emerge or change from one state to another. It's likeness to bear the image of another thing. So these are just some little insights into the language of Philippians chapter 2. But I would say that probably the most obvious thing and the important thing about Jesus' humanity, as you referenced earlier, Wendy, is that he was a real person with real blood who bled and died on the cross of Calvary for our sins. And Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is a reference to Leviticus 17.11, which says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The Son of God had to become a man and die the death of a man in order to be the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of mankind. Our sin is forgiven because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to purchase our pardon. I'm very fond of a hymn called His Robes for Mine, and it starts this way, His robes for mine, O wonderful exchanged, Exchange, clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my death he died. The Course says this, Bought by such love, my my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. Mm, That's such a great way to, to finish that up. And, I, you know, I just think it's so important. It's just like you said, we had to have a sacrifice for sin, but it had to be a perfect sacrifice and shed blood. And so without God or without Jesus being truly God and truly man, there there was no one else who would have been able to to be that sacrifice and that payment. Yes, there was no plan B. No. There was, there was no, no plan, plan B. B. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is mind-blowing to think about <laughs> these things. Um, and so I'm grateful that we have the scripture to help us out. Do you guys have any more thoughts that you want to share about those things before we end? I must say that in preparing this, I I felt a great weight about talking about this particular thing because of, you know, of what you just said that you know that as we just said there's no plan B and Christ did this for us and what a monumental thing it is we cannot even fully grasp it. Yeah, I don't think so. I think my response was just incredible gratitude as yeah. I thought through and typed out notes and, and really once again revisit what Christ did in our stead. And it truly is incredible. Well, thank you. Did you have one more thing? Yeah, I was just thinking as the uh, superhero 
fan in here. I was actually reading a devotional. I was thinking about him being fully man and fully deity. And it said that we actually, we don't need a superhero. We need a savior. And because he was fully God and fully man, he is our savior. Otherwise, he would just only be a superhero or a role model. But that's not what we need. We need a savior. Mm-hmm. That's right. There are many people who are crucified, mm-hmm. but only one, only one fully God, fully man who is crucified, the Lord Jesus. And resurrected. And resurrected. Hallelujah. Well, thank you for sharing all of the insight on Christology that we have today. And don't forget, we have more Christology to cover. That's not even everything. So we will get to more Christology uh, next semester for sure. Um, So we're going to end with another one of my fun rapid response questions. Are you an early bird or are you a night owl? And remember, Jesus was an early bird, just saying. So I think we should do something fun and guess each other's. Oh, okay. I like it. Okay. So. All right. You guess, Bethany. You know all of us. I will guess. I will guess Laura. Early bird. (laughs) I am definitely an early bird. Yeah. I'm early to bed, early to rise. Yep. Okay. So then I have to guess somebody else. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, I think Wendy's a night owl. Oh, <laughs> I am striking out with Wendy like today. The big red X. <laughs> I am an early bird. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ask my children. That, that's always the joke when we try and watch a movie at night. If mom's still awake at the end, it's a really good movie. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's yeah. funny. Yeah. Okay. So I have to, I'm going to guess you're an early bird, Marty Crabtree. That is right. I am an early bird and I have fallen on the, asleep on the couch more times than I have <laughs> can count. But, you know, if I want to get something done, it's got to get done in the morning. Yes, with a good cup of coffee. Two. Okay, or two, or a half a pot, whatever. <laughs> All right, you have to guess Bethany. Bethany is a night owl. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm a night owl. I used to tell the story when I was in college um, on a Saturday I got up just in time to get to the cafeteria and get through the door as they closed it. <laughs> for breakfast or for lunch? For lunch. <laughs> for lunch. Oh, not breakfast. I think I ate breakfast twice in college. <laughs> twice. That's funny. Yeah. No, I'm definitely a night owl. Definitely a night owl. Well, there you go. Well, we are so glad that you have listened to us for this uh season on the podcast. This is our final episode of season one of the Theology Matters podcast. So we um, will be coming out with some bonus episodes. So make sure you subscribe. And we just pray that this was helpful to you, whether you are a member who was in our class with us first semester, or you're joining us second semester, or you're not doing the class and you're just learning some theology and picking up some things from listening to the podcast. We hope that it is a blessing to you. So thanks for listening. The Theology Matters course and podcast are projects of the women's ministry at Emanuel Bible Church in Springfield, Virginia. Please subscribe to Theology Matters wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, please visit ibc.church and find the women's ministry page. We pray you will continue to study and understand the truth of God's word every day and see just how much theology matters in every aspect of our lives.